This is Flex and Herds here on Death of the Reader for your Murder Mystery World Tour. We have reached the end of Robert Galbraith's A Cuckoo's Calling. You might also know Robert Galbraith as J.K. Rowling of Harry Potter fame. And Herds, I think you might have finally done it. Done it? Have I? You might have finally defeated me with one of your picks. It turns out that it was in fact Good Sir or Bad Sir John Bristow who was responsible for pushing his adoptive sister off her balcony to her death on that frigid morning. But Herds, that is not the spotlight that I want to shine on this book. (laughs) Okay, sure. Because this book's this book's plot, in terms of a mystery, as we will discuss in the final part of the show today, is a mess. It is a mess in so many ways, some that make it excellent, some that make it terrible. But the strength that J.K. Rowling has put into this book is the character scenes, the subtle details. One I particularly loved was the uh, policeman who our Detective Cormoran Strike meets with. All of the side glances and descriptions of the way that he carries his voice and his eyes through the scene really help you build a character that is barely there for most of the story. And for the characters that are there for a lot of the story, it means we get this excellent fleshed out image of them that so rarely stops to describe who they are, instead using the scenes to show it, which is just good writing. But the execution here is just so close to perfection. Yeah, I especially love that. I believe it's the policeman who is just will not listen uh, to our detective, Cormoran Strike, for knives of the novel. And then right at the end, he says, All right, fine, I'll do what you want. And he gets like a medal. He gets like all like knives into the credit, which is fantastic. I love his character arc. Standard affair, standard affair. It's awful. I think, Herds, the best, the best scene in this novel, mm. without a shadow of a doubt, mm-hmm. I was cackling as I was reading through this thing, is the description of how John Bristow did it. Oh my goodness, he's a psychopath. It's brilliant. (laughs) It is absolutely ludicrous. This man hides out in his strange adoptive sister's apartment building in a different apartment after sneaking in, following a locksmith working on the door, hangs out there for the entire day, planning in his head his crime, and then later in the evening just moseys on upstairs and kills his sister. Yeah. It's so, like, watching you trying to solve this novel, like, you nailed- This is what I'm so fascinated by. Like, you nailed- You were like, it's John Bristow. It has to be. There's no one else it could be. He killed Charlie, which was easy in my mind because of the literary device of the cuckoo, which is something we'll talk about later. But uh, the- fact that you were trying to put together like so he's bribed this person and this person and all this money is going these ways and this is how things have been planned out and like none of it was planned out at all it's insane to me that the novel does this 180 in that way that's the thing is and i i think we might kind of uh you, do you want to twist the ship here herds and just bring the mystery discussion forwards because i think it really is the story. Look, I'm happy to do that. I'm happy for that. Damn right. All right, so let's go into Is This Mystery Fair, as we would normally do at the end of the show. Sure. Because, and, and I'm going to title this, I'm going to title this A Broken Vase and Broken Dreams. Okay, sure. That is the title of this discussion. Because the one thing that this novel does, which I feel like a fool for missing, and honestly, if we were playing a one-point game, I wouldn't have given me a point over this, is that the novel does the classic move of making it's so obvious who and how it happened, but 
just forcing you to ignore everything else that's going on. There's this discussion with Wilson, the security guard, early on in the book where they're talking about how the other apartment was kind of broken into and the vase was smashed. And in my mind, I was thinking to myself that the crime needed nothing to do with that because everything about Jean Bristow's character, who he was, how he carried himself, who knew him, didn't necessitate him hiding in another apartment for the entire day to get in to his sister's apartment. To my mind, what it seemed like is that he was able to get into the apartment because he was a relative and thus people knew him and weren't suspicious of him. He was a lawyer and the other family in the building, the Bastigues, was going through a divorce, so he probably had dirt on both of them that he could use to bribe them. He appeared with Tansy Bastigui in a discussion where he seemed to be leading it, which made it seem to me like he was, again, using that dirt. So the entire crime was possible without any of this sneaking in under the locksmith, hiding out for the whole day, smashing the vase. That was all, you know, completely secondary. And to my mind, I was thinking out, you know, what that had to do with the Bastigues. Why perhaps had they gone into the other apartment that they had to do with because Freddie Bastigui was trying to get the owner of that apartment, D.B. Mac, into a film. I thought that it was going to be something to do with that. Maybe that, you know... Uh, Tansy had gone downstairs and was trying to snort coke in that bathroom and Freddie had, you know, interrupted it. And I thought that that was going to be the secondary mystery. I thought that that was going to be, you know, the B plot, basically, because it seemed so unnecessary to how easy it could have been for John Bristow. That's the strength, right? That's the strength of this novel is that it could have been very simply solved. But the kind of roundabout way that we get to the solution um, that, that J.K. Rowling has, has decided on adds so much more character, especially to our killer. Don't get me wrong. I think that the final breakdown scene that we get from Cormoran Strike with Bristow sitting in his office is one of the greatest breakdown scenes I've ever read because it is so insane. The mistake that I made, and I think that the mistake that J.K. Rowling has excellently capitalized on in a standard mystery reader is that I wasn't asking myself why these things were there. I wasn't asking myself, you know, why they were bringing up the detail with the time, why they were bringing up the vase, because even though I could still explain them all away, I think I explained them all away just to have them off to the side rather than thinking why J.K. Rowling had put it in there, which is normally what gets me so far in these mystery novels, but it was played with such an excellent trapping with this B-plot that I started to associate it with the B-plot. So yeah, we should we should probably should line out the uh, uh, for you out there. We're going to be attributing one point uh, to Flex here for solving the majority of the mystery, the who, the how, and the why. Technically, it's very generous of you. I honestly, yeah, I, I'm I, I'm skeptical of this point myself. I would forgive you if you did not give it to me, but I will accept it nonetheless. Look, you you nailed uh, Charlie in particular so quickly on, like so early on. I could not give you a point. Uh, for your perception in that regard. Um, but I definitely would not be giving you the second point because you totally flubbed uh, the the Bastigui situation. 
Yeah, I, I did make a bit of a mess of that one. I think even listening back to last week's show, I was like, I, I feel like I explained that poorly, which was because I didn't quite get it. I'm not trying to, you know, fluff myself up here. But um, I, I do think that uh, particularly trying to understand the geometry of the apartment, I hadn't quite understood the way that like the balconies were laid out. So the way that it was described, how she was outside on the balcony and the reporters were there seemed a bit far-fetched to me. I'd kind of pictured that it would be something along the lines of, there was a glass door followed by a glass balcony front. So the entire thing of her hiding behind the stone front there just didn't cross my mind at all when that ended up being a key piece of the puzzle. Yeah, the fact that we we learned that the uh, the whole reason why she's lying, uh, why Tansy is is you know lying about what happened, but also kind of not really lying. It's it's funny that uh, is that she's trying to cover up the abuse that her her husband is delivering to her rather than any you know monetary reasoning. Um, and the the kind of key clue there is that she didn't clean up the coke. Like <laughs> like what is she doing? Not cleaning up the evidence of her transgressions. And and I think one of the interesting things, and perhaps you know. Uh, shame on me for typecasting here, but I do think that uh, it makes sense to me that an author like J.K. Rowling would be having it that Tansy Bastigui, who has been accused of lying this whole time, is actually the victim in her circumstance. You know, that seems like a message that she would be interested in portraying. And, um, you know, I think that it was a, a bit of a shame that I didn't see that coming because obviously that was a significant undertone to the novel of, you know, who was believed and who wasn't, which it is in every mystery novel. But considering the way that this book played out social commentary, uh, I think that should have been a point that uh, readers should catch on earlier on in the novel. And I didn't. There's such a huge undercurrent in all of the the subplots about appearances um, and who to believe, uh, you know, what what truth should we take as fact, not just in the murder itself, but uh, even in uncovering the backstory of John Bristow and how he pushes uh, his, his adoptive brother into the quarry because he just wanted all the attention for himself, uh, like the cuckoo that he is. Um, which is a brilliant thing. Do you want to talk about that now? Do you want to talk about cuckoos now? Or yeah, yeah. I think I think we should. I think we should. Awesome. So this is something that for me, I guess, was super obvious because uh, I'm I'm well familiar with the trope of the cuckoo and like what it's known for. Um, the the cuckoo is a bird. Uh, the, its whole jam is that the mother cuckoo will fly into another bird's nest, push one of the eggs out of the nest, and lay its own there. Um, and in this story, Lula Landry is kind of portrayed as the cuckoo. She's the black, you know, daughter in the white family. Um, she's the odd one out where everybody's you know, famous, but she's the only like genuine person. Um, but of course, the reveal at the end of the novel is that John Bristow, and this is something that, that keeps coming up time and time again, like so many characters, including our murder victims, uh, our three murder victims, all suffer death. Uh, by by gravity related you know pushings and fallings um, and even characters outside of that when Corman strike you know he injures his leg at the end of the novel um, and Robin almost dies at the start of the novel they're all like falling downstairs and off balconies like it's all related back to the idea of the cocker pushing uh, pushing pushing eggs out of the nest um, in literature uh, it's often also that the the baby cocker when it like hatches will push its siblings out of the nest. Uh, such as in the novel Pork by Chris Freddy, which is one of little sort of short stories about the brutality of nature. Uh, but I, I really loved the way that this trope was used in this novel because it's, it's, it's a surprise, right? Like we're presented with one cuckoo and everything flips back around. So we realized that it, it wasn't, you know, being an adoptive 
child and and being different isn't a bad thing. It's about that selfishness and that parasitical nature that John Bristow has. Like the the kind of archetype of the cuckoo in in these stories, such as in Pork, is that they are selfish uh, and that they take things for granted. That they seek you know the attention of their of their parents to to the detriment of their siblings, which is very much what John Bristow is doing all through the story. Uh, he's he's a parasite on Cormoran Strike as he bequeaths him you know simpering and like you know like acting like a, a very vulnerable character uh to get Cormoran Strike to do what he wants uh and that's why I I kind of love how pathetic he is even by the end of it uh as he you know descends upon a crippled man <laughs> you know like everything he does is so despicable in hindsight it's it's kind of perfect yeah, it is really excellent, and I really like that the way that that thematic carries out throughout the book, because not only is the thematic kind of underlining the core message of the book, but because it's happening in different circumstances aside from the actual culprit, it's being used as a red herring while still being the thematic of the novel, which is such an excellent device. Yeah, the fact that uh, particularly about Guy Somme is uh, referring to Lil Landry as his little cuckoo, which is kind of a joke because society perceives her as the cuckoo, but she's actually just a lovely little bird um, who has bad circumstances, right? There are so many characters that refer to her in that way, but it's more of a joke um, because she is the most genuine character in the novel and it is a tragedy that she was pushed from the nest, as it were. Absolutely. Now, Herds, that is the time we have for discussing the mystery. We're doing the show backwards today. As we said earlier on, we're going to be talking about the general plot of the novel coming up in the final section of the show today. This is Death of the Reader. We are Flex and Herds talking the last chapters of The Cuckoo's Calling by J.K. Rowling or Robert Galbraith. And we'll be back with more of that in just a second. You're listening to Death of the Reader. This is Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour. And we are discussing The Cuckoo's Calling by Robert Galbraith, or J.K. Rowling, as you might know her. This book, Herds, has been a very, very interesting ride. Obviously, we've discussed the mystery in the earlier part of the show. So if you've tuned in late for whatever reason, expecting your normal mystery discussion, you've missed it. Check us out on the podcast on all of your favorite podcast streaming locations. What I wanted to talk about today, Herds, is actually uh, J.K. Rowling and kind of the way that the novel has been perceived. I have been scouring, scouring the internet for weeks now trying to find, well, I mean, just the three weeks, trying to find uh, reviews of the book from before J.K. Rowling was unmasked. And it seems that a lot of publications have actually kind of scrubbed them from existence. Yeah, I, I've, the only thing that I've been able to really find uh, from the public consensus is that this novel was kind of mediocrely Mediocrely? Yeah, whatever. Mediocrely received uh, when it first came out. And that was revealed that it was J.K. Rowling who, you know, wrote it. Everyone was like, oh, what a great novel this is. Um, Which actually led to me being a little bit skeptical coming to this book when I first read it. (laughs) Because I thought, well, that probably means it's not going to be very great. And it's mostly going to be carried by star appeal. I was pleasantly surprised to find such a solid story. But uh, you you are absolutely correct. I, I 
guess that it's just embarrassing, right? Whatever whatever has been written about this novel beforehand has been purged from the internet. Were you able to find anything kind of substantial at all? Well, I've found I've found a few little comments that have said things like it's a quick, fun read. Um, and that, you know, it, it, it really is an interesting first step, but it seems to me like a lot of the reviews from the early days of this novel are more treating it as an ordinary book, which I think, honestly, it is. It is an ordinary but very, very well done book, which means that a lot of the initial reviews that people were making of this book have just been targeted towards perceiving it as ordinary. Which is totally fair, because when you look at the absolute swathes of fiction that come out day to day around the world, it's kind of hard to point at one book over another and say, this is more worthwhile than anything else. For sure. I think it is an interesting metacriticism that the book about fame and its risks was elevated to being viable and well accepted because of the fame of its author, which was trying to be avoided. It's a really kind of funny situation. It's- uh, I don't want to say that J.K. Rowling is being hypocritical by, you know, revealing their status. Um, I, I like to think that it was not motivated by her desire to push book sales because that would be really sad. I don't even necessarily think that it was her that did it. I haven't read up extensively. I hope not on the uh, on the incident itself, but uh, supposedly she was suspicious that the BBC had leaked it given contract dealings that were going on because obviously they needed the rights for various reasons. Unfortunately, the actual article that unmasked her has <laughs> has been hidden behind a paywall. Of course. So we will have to look into that in other ways. But I think ultimately what it boils down to is that J.K. Rowling accepted the outcome of herself being unmasked and capitalized on it, which is fine. No, I agree. Someone has to have a career, even if you're one of the highest paid authors of all time. You know, you do you. But it is it is very interesting to me because, as you said, I was very skeptical of this book because I'd heard initially that it was not good. I haven't been able to find anything other than comments on social media that have said as such. All of the reviews, as I said, have been more or less scrubbed from history and updated and given more praising reviews. Even if you take the internet's way back machine, it doesn't quite give you an accurate picture of what people thought. We only really have secondhand sources right now from such a time so long ago. Uh, but no, I, I think it's a bit of a shame that she, that she wasn't able to uh, spread her wings, as it were, as as Robert Galbraith getting to write the entire series of, of Cormoran Strike. Um, because th- this was her intent, right? That Her entire intent of writing these novels was to get a fresh start, was to do something, um, not necessarily that she hadn't done before, because as we've mentioned, that the Harry Potter books have a lot of murder mystery elements. But no, I, I especially enjoy the way that uh, J.K. Rowling uses, uh, as I say, those elements from, from past texts um, and tries to give a new spin on them. I think that the the one that I've enjoyed the most, as clever as the cup you is, I actually appreciate her use of the hero Ulysses, um, also known as, uh, as Odysseus. Um, and obviously, you know, uh, there's these kind of pretentious quotes at the start of each chapter, but she eventually, by the end of the novel, with the kind of closing lines, builds um, to this point where she's directly comparing Cormoran Strike to Ulysses, you know, uh, I am become a name. Uh, and the kind of connotation of that line uh, is is not just that, you know, through pursuing great deeds and moving through uh, great tragedies, you become something important, but also that once you do something great, 
uh, you'll become nothing but a name. And so it's it's foreshadowing the fact that the series is going to continue and that Strike is going to. He's not going to just become a name. He's going to continue onward. And I actually really like that she's, she's drawing this direct parallel between a Greek hero who is bound by destiny but still forced to go through hardship and by conquering that hardship achieves that fame and that glory by the end of their, of their story. Um, tying that directly to a detective who would like, when you sit down and read a murder mystery book, you know that the detective is going to succeed. You know that Odysseus is going to defeat the Cyclops. You know that uh, Cormoran Strike is going to figure out who killed Lula Landry. And you also know if you've read, you know, any murder mystery books, that it is going to be a murder and not a suicide, right? There's this inevitability about it. So I actually really appreciate uh, J.K. Rowling's assertion here that a murder mystery detective is like a Greek hero. Uh, and, and in this case, particularly Ulysses, known as the scarred hero um, of, of, of Greco-Roman uh, fame, which is fantastic with Cormoran missing his leg and the same with it. The Odysseus just gets totally messed up. It's it's beautiful. I also think that there's something particularly elegant coming from Sherlock Holmes to this, looking at the way that it is the character flaws of the detective that really build the setting. It is their partnership with their duo that builds the setting. And even though a lot of the original uh, classic epics deal with the main hero and everyone else is a secondary character, a lot of those stories still tackle with dealing with their hubris, dealing with their flaws. For sure. I mean, that's that's the Greek hero in a nutshell, it's hubris. And I also, uh, I, I think I mentioned this last time, but also the fact that it's uh, in, in the Odyssey, it's the crew that is constantly getting Ulysses into trouble um, in the same way that the police are constantly getting the de- their respective detectives in trouble, um, particularly in, in Sherlock Holmes novels with the bumbling detectives. And in this one, the police actually getting in Cormoran Strike's way and detaining him. That is a super parallel uh, to, um, I forget what the island is called, but there's an island where if you you travel to it, you inhale the like pollen and the flowers and you just, you just sleep forever. And so Ulysses has to physically drag every single one of his crew members back to the ship because he's the only one who can like push through it. It's, it's perfect. It's a perfect analogy. The other thing I like is looking at this in relation to the discussion we had with Simon Brett on the show a few weeks ago about the superstructures of narrative and how he used Hamlet as kind of a meta structure for his story so that he, it could still follow a sequence that he knew worked much the same way that J.K. Rowling has used the sequences and the themes of classic epics to build up not only this franchise, but her previous ones. Harry Potter, shout out to the 10 years and the scar. Harry Potter is Ulysses confirmed. Harry Potter is Cormoran Strike. (gasps) Oh my goodness. That's a theory I can get behind. No, I absolutely love this novel. I think that the the descriptive language that is used in it is particularly excellent, especially coming from, I'd say, somewhat male-dominated fields. Uh, aside from titans like Christie and Dorothy L. Sayers and Nio Marsh, uh, it, it's it's nice to see scenes, you know, with women's fashion described tastefully as opposed to uncomfortably horny. Mm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's nice to see these character scenes given this real grit without it just being depressing. It's nice to see a story that just does something so completely ridiculous. I have no idea why it did it but still enjoying it so, so much. Uh, I did want to mention, actually, because I thought this was quite humorous. Uh, do you remember the last episode where you were talking about Rochelle and you said, oh, 
oh, she's such a pointless character. She might as well just be another murder victim. How dare you accuse me of calling her pointless, but also thank you very much. Yes, she was another murder victim. She was another murder victim. She was exactly what you thought she should have been, um, which is fantastic. I just wanted to point that out there because I thought that was a, was a beautiful little coincidence there. I didn't, I did coincidence, coincidence. Heads. Listen, I don't want to take too much credit considering that I missed an entire point in this novel, but I, I, I think I can say that I had my head around most of this novel pretty well, you know, I knew I knew where the steps were taking me most of the way. It was pretty obvious the way that they were framing Rochelle up, that she, you know, she was bound for something later in the novel, and it got to a point where it was too late for it to be something good. Um, and obviously the story had been very active about describing both of the mysterious men on the CCTV camera as male. Um, it was interesting getting the reveal of Jonah so late in the story. I was very much expecting... Uh, that to show up kind of in the middle section of the book. I was a little surprised when we didn't get it there, which which on the one hand made me absolutely certain, again, that it was not going to be him that was responsible. But that scene uh, where, you know, discussing with Jonah and talking about how he had doubts of why he was drawn there and him being able to relate with Cormoran Strike was as a former veteran as himself was such an excellent example of how the novel's use of character description through their action, was just able to build that camaraderie between the two of them so suddenly and eloquently. Yeah, no, that scene was, it was the perfect epilogue. Like, I, I know that there's still a scene after that where Cormoran Strike goes to get his leg looked at and they have the Ulysses quote and that's perfect too. But that scene where we have a character who we've only heard about and the entire story revolves around, right? Thematically and just in terms of the actual plot because he's the one who gets all the money at the end. Um, having having Jonah show up at the end and, and suddenly be so obviously important emotionally to Cormoran Strike. I I don't know. I I just loved it. I, <laughs> I it was a perfect epilogue because usually when I read epilogues of these murder mystery stories, it's you know it's the Watson and the detective saying, "Ah, oh, well, guess we'll get together for the next one, eh, Holmes?" And he's like, "Yes, of course, yes, we will." And I'm like, okay, this is kind of a pointless scene. But they portrayed Jonah as such a wholesome character who deserved what he got at the end of the story. Uh, in such an elegant way. You're absolutely correct. Yeah, and you wouldn't you wouldn't have thought he deserved it if he was on screen for that short of a time and poorly written. Exactly. He was extremely well written for just long enough to make you understand why he was the the worthwhile one at the end of that story. And this is of course the the massive strength that J.K. Rowling, you know, pours into this novel, the absolute strength of her individual characters and their short but impactful appearances on the on the plot. Before we wrap up today, I will say one of the things I said on previous weeks covering this book mm. was that the story felt like it had a bunch of threads in its web of mystery that I did not know how they were going to come back together. And obviously having not solved it, you know, that analogy played itself out in one shape or another. But I think that rather than coming together as a whole web, we've kind of ended up with these two separate webs that didn't quite connect. And if we hadn't had those scenes in the epilogue with the payoff with Jonah after the just chaos with John Bristow, <laughs> I think that this book would have felt extremely, extremely unsatisfactory because the tie together at the end before the epilogue was extremely underwhelming. But it goes to show that even with a mess, even with a 
thematically organized, ridiculous, over-the-top, intense mess like this novel. The correct decision in a simple, simple scene like that one with Jonah can really, really tie something together. And I think that even though this book is not exemplary for a lot of reasons amongst its modern peers in crime fiction, I think that any author could stand to learn something for how how this book concludes itself after being such a mess. You can tell that J.K. Rowling had a vision when she put this story together, and it really is in those final those final scenes, even the final words of this novel, that it pulled itself together and made me made me love and appreciate it. I will definitely put this down as a must read, but I think that it is a must read amongst a field of other modern must reads, including Herd's next week's book. Here we go. We are going to be revisiting dear friend of the show, absolute <gasps> charmer, Solari Gentil, oh. with her book, All the Tears in China herds oh my goodness we spoke about this when we had solari gentil on the show last time it is one of her roland sinclair mysteries yes i remember Alrighty, what what chapters will we be looking at herds we are going to be covering chapters one to seven in this book Alrighty. i hope you are looking forward to it i am very excited to get the wonderful solari gentil back on the show to talk about both this and her more recent endeavors Thank you very much for introducing me to this book, Herz. I honestly, I honestly might have avoided the cuckoo's calling altogether if you hadn't pushed me into it. Look, I, I decided we had to go for a modern novel, and I thought, what's more modern than J.K. Rowling? Come on, she's the queen of of modern crime fiction. I don't know if that's true. The queen of modern fiction. Has anyone outsold her since? I don't think so. Look, if they have, I haven't heard about it. Let us know. <laughs> let's let's have a pit fight between J.K. Rowling. And Agatha Christie, who comes out on top. And it's it's not her fists and kicks and martial arts. I just want the two of them to sit there and just sling puzzles at each other. I'd be in. I'd be in. I, anyway. I vote for Christie. <laughs> I, I think I do as well. Oh, wow. Okay. You are listening to Death of the Reader. We are Flex and Herds. This has been The Cuckoo's Calling by Robert Galbraith, a.k.a. J.K. Rowling. Thank you very much for joining us. We will see you next week on the show for all the tears in China. Every one of them. This is 2SER.